Hello and welcome to Hide Here Obsessed. I am your host, Thomas Boomhauer, and today we continue our little mini-series on Philip II of Macedonia, father of Alexander the Great. Last episode, we barely talked about old Phil. Instead, we spent the bulk of our time talking about ancient Macedonia as a whole and some of their cultures, their customs, and a little bit about Philip II before he was king. And we spent a lot of our time discussing the circumstances surrounding Philip II taking the throne of Macedonia. Today, we pick up with his ascension to the throne in 359 BCE and end only three years later in 356 BCE because this episode's going to be super long, and I only covered three years already, so. Originally, I did plan on doing things a little bit differently, but because of the sheer amount that Philip accomplishes at the start of his reign, as well as my desire to try to keep these episodes short in that 30 to 45 minute range, I decided to break things up a little bit more, so we're going to have a few more episodes on Philip than planned. But before our deep dive truly begins... Remember to check out the show on Instagram at High Tea Obsessed Podcast and on Twitter at High T.O. Podcast. And there's links to both of those in the show notes. And of course, if you search up High Tea Obsessed on the, their respective platforms, that should show up as well. Also, be sure to drop five star ratings and reviews on the podcast platform of your choice. That helps the show grow, get some more juice, get out there to more listeners, stuff like that. And if you're so inclined, feel free to check out the Patreon in the show notes as well. And now, let's just get into it. Philip II of Macedon is such a fascinating and understudied figure in history. The main sources for a lot of the information we have come from Diodorus Sidulus and Justin's Epitome, who are also two of our surviving sources on Alexander the Great, and not necessarily, you know, our first round draft pick of choices, but that's what we got. Although recent scholarship has tended to highlight the importance of Philip II, and massive strides have definitely been made in the recognition of his own greatness, he was so outclassed, at least in the minds of the ancients by Alexander, that it appears very little was recorded about him. Further, Philip was never expected to be king, and the kingdom he came to rule was only a minor backwater unimportant to the Greek world at large, or at least to the Athenians, from whom so much of our understanding of the time comes from. And it's really just a shame because, as we'll see over the next uh, few episodes, Philip is every bit as remarkable as his son. Though, you know, talented in other areas, not as talented as a conqueror for sure, but I think it's so fair to say that without Philip, we would almost definitely not remember Alexander as the great. Anyway, if you recall from the last episode, the circumstances surrounding Philip's ascension to the throne were less than ideal, to say the least. His brother and predecessor, Perdiccas III, had been killed in battle, and the army was shattered, like, routed, not really up to much anymore, didn't really exist. The Illyrians were running rampant and in firm control of Upper Macedon. The Thracians and Athenians were each backing separate pretenders to the Macedonian throne, and the Paeonians were raiding Macedonia, like the actual lower Macedonia, I guess. And a 23-year-old with limited experience, who had never expected to take the throne, had just inherited all this mess. So, you know, not ideal, like I said. And I think we'd have been forgiven if we didn't think this star portended greatness, not only for the young king, but also for his kingdom. So one of the first things that Philip does upon taking the throne is reform the Macedonian military. Both the army and cavalry 
And this wasn't just in terms of tactics, but also equipment and attitudes as well. It is important to note that this would be an ongoing process throughout his reign and that the process of refinement would continue under Alexander the Great and then ultimately into the armies of the successors of Alexander as well. But it's easier to talk about all of the changes that Philip brought about at once instead of just going like, you know, here's its event and then after this, this reform took place. So it's just easier if we do it right now. Historically, the Macedonian army had never really been much. It was really a joke. And while the cavalry was pretty good and the Macedonians themselves were fine riders, they were just constantly losing wars and battles and being forced out of their own nation by their neighbors. Now, the army itself was comprised mainly of peasant conscripts who were poorly armed and armored, if at all, and perhaps often were only fighting with their farm tools, which is just wild, wild stuff. And then given their most recent defeat at the hands of the Illyrians, the morale of Macedonia, and especially the Macedonian army, was likely at an all-time low. You know, not only had they just literally been shattered, their king and most of the army killed in battle, we're coming from a period of a lot of tumult, and, you know, the economy's bad, everything's bad right now. There's a score of enemies clearly jazzed at the idea to, like, they're ready, sharpening their knives to rip this country to shreds. And so Diodorus writes that Philip begins his reign by restoring the confidence of the Macedonian people by, quote, bringing together the Macedonians in a series of assemblies and exhorting them with eloquent speeches to be men. He sought to win over the multitudes by his gifts and promises, unquote. So the record shows that Philip was believed to have been quite charming, and even his enemies would prove weak to his charms at times and were forced to admit just like how cool this guy was, basically. He must have just gone into the you know metaphorical locker room here and given just one hell of a halftime speech to fire up his boys, get the Macedonians raring ready to go. And so with that confidence restored, he sets about building up the army to his standards. And if you recall, there's a lot of speculation that these ideas were refined during his time as a hostage in Thebes. And I guess the idea is that he'd been waiting to implement this if he ever got the chance. In Greece, the armies fought with hoplite armaments and tactics. You know, big old shield, we got a spear going, short sword, bronze or iron helmets, and armor. Macedonian peasant army was not doing that because they couldn't afford to. There is some pretty good evidence that one of Philip's immediate predecessors, likely Alexander II, it appears that he made some moves to equip and train an elite division of hoplite troops and incorporate them into the Macedonian army. But his reforms hadn't really had time to percolate. You know, they hadn't had time to take root and to spread beyond that small little squadron, you know into the main army. And so one of the moves that Philip makes is to pivot away from this idea. And he comes up with his own little spin on it. And this could have been because he realized his army needed an equipment upgrade, but they were unable to bear the expenses themselves. And the royal treasury at this point also wasn't able to bear the expense. And so he turned to cheaper methods in the hoplite. Or it could have been, you know, he needed to spend his funds elsewhere on mercenaries. But what Philip does is invents a totally new weapon, or at the very least, a totally new weapon of war. And this is, of course, the Sarissa, a weapon that would transform ancient warfare and enable the Batwater Kingdom of Macedonia to become a superpower. 
Now, it's not going to sound super innovative when I tell you what it is. The Sarissa was a very long spear, coming in at about 15 to 18 feet, or 4.5 to 5.5 meters in length. At one end, there was an iron pike tip, you know, the pointy end, and it had a streamlined head that was designed to penetrate enemy armor and continue into the enemy's body. However, due to the length, if only the pointy end was heavy, the weapon would have been super unwieldy, and so at the opposite end, there was a metal butt made of either iron or bronze that acted as a counterweight and offered the wielder much more balance and more wiggle room for how to utilize the Sarissa. Just so you know, there was more variance in where they could hold the shaft, for example. Another reason besides the sheer length and heavy metal attachments at either end for the weight of the Sarissa was that it was made from this fancy, super hard Cornell wood, which was very plentiful in Macedonia. And that's another reason, you know, what does Macedonia have? They got iron deposits and they have wood going on. So Philip was able to mass produce these spears with what he had at hand without spending a lot of money, basically. Now, all of this weight, as well as the shape of the butt of the spear meant that you could kind of drive it into the ground and use it as a brace for if the, you know, the enemy launches a cavalry attack at you, you're trying to spear the horses, unfortunately. And this might not sound like a staggering innovation, but this just lengthening the spear twice as long as the traditional hoplite spear, basically, truly revolutionized ancient warfare. The Greek hoplites were rotten with a spear that came in at about 8 feet or 2.5 meters in length. And the Greek hoplite were the unit of the day. And, you know, we have the Greek mercenaries being hired out and composing much of the Persian forces at various times as well. And so this meant there was a lot of uniformity in tactics and obviously equipment, armament and stuff. So any innovation kind of made, you know, like meant that it was ripe to exploit the these tactics, I guess. And that's why the Theban victory at Lutra was so monumental, because they toppled the myth of Spartan invincibility and used some innovations to their own hoplite tactics, which were then copied because the Greek poli, much like the NBA, copycat lead back in the day. And so by the time of Philip, a lot of these Theban tactics have now been adapted. But rounding out Philip's makeover of the Macedonian infantry, he equipped them with bronze helmets and greaves, tall boots, a cloth tunic, light body armor, lightly made of leather at this time, and then a small shield that I've read has been, was worn around the neck kind of, like a breastplate, which doesn't really make a ton of sense, but also they would wear it on their left arm, which I think makes more sense. They also had a short sword for if the enemy got in close, or for like city fighting, stuff like that. And the reason that they were able to get away with this light equipment was due to just how formidable the Sarissa were. So the sight of the army marching with these giant spears was a novel and a little scary to those who faced them. And while the novelty, the, while the novelty would wear off after time, the fear would only grow once it became clear just how deadly this new weapon was. Additionally, at twice the length of most of their enemy's spears, if not, long, if not more, it prevented the bulk of the enemy army from even reaching the Macedonians. And so, you know, you don't really need armor if nobody's getting close to you at all. And so, you're probably thinking at this point, here's how we're going to counteract this. Let's get some slanders going on. Let's get some archers involved. See how these dudes with light armor and small shields fare against projectiles. 
Now that answer might surprise you. Due to the length of the sarissa, only the first five or so rows of a phalanx, more on what a phalanx is in just a moment, should have spears facing the enemy. The rest had their spears at various angles above their head and also their companion's heads, creating like a tangled weave that made it difficult for arrows to penetrate. Another reason for the emphasis on light equipment, besides the financial need, was maneuverability. And while Philip wasn't immediately able to have his phalanx as mobile as it would be in later days, the lack of bulk, you know, heavy equipment, heavy shields, heavy armor, stuff like that, that needed to be lugged around meant that they could cover vast distances pretty quickly, which is something that Alexander would become famous for. And it's just like he would move his army in just mind-boggling ways. This focus on fast movement was representative of another aspect of Philip's military reforms, streamlining and innovation. He wanted his force to be quick and agile, to which end he forbade camp followers, you know, the group of people, you know, salespeople ranging from merchants to prostitutes, as well as like family and other camp hangers that would follow the men when they marched on campaign. Obviously, they would really slow things down. He also made his men carry their own packs and banned the use of wheeled transport and transitioned to pack animals, because we don't need these oxen to carry these giant carts anymore. Now we got mules and donkeys and horses, which are much faster. In terms of how he arranged his newly created units, the Macedonian phalanx under Philip and then Alexander would continually evolve, not only based on best practices as each commander sort of learned more about his forces and how to deploy them, but they'd also tailor them for a specific battle. Originally, the phalanx was designed for weight and power, which was often a determining factor in ancient battles, but eventually maneuverability would be a focus. In order to effectively utilize these somewhat unwieldy spears in the short window between Philip taking the throne and mobilizing his new forces, the training period was condensed somewhat, but this would quickly become an excellently drilled army of elite killers. The first iteration of the Macedonian phalanx was arranged in a simple box formation, 10 men deep, 10 men wide, with each set of 10 commanded by a Dark or leader of 10. Philip did more than just upgrade his peasant rabble. He also reorganized the Macedonian heavy infantry as well. Like I mentioned before, one of his immediate predecessors had formed an elite squadron of heavy hoplite infantry. And while it is unclear if Philip's elite heavy infantry would utilize these tactics, or just, you know, uber-skilled with the full arsenal of Macedonian weaponry, Philip named this unit the Pez Hetarai, or Foot Companions. I'm very sorry for how I butchered that, but... You know, charge it to the game. Later, this term, the Pez Hetorai, would apply to the entire infantry, and the elite unit would be known as the Hypacipists. In addition to the phalanx and foot companions, Philip would utilize mercenaries, particularly for brutal fighting, such as clearing uh, city streets after a siege. And he also had a variety of artillery forces like Slinners, Peltast, and Archers. Although this reform of warfare was indeed revolutionary and the phalanx would prove deadly again and again, it is Philip's innovations and organization of the Macedonian cavalry that truly allowed his army to thrive. As Richard A. Gabriel writes in Philip II of Macedonia, greater than Alexander, the revolutionary aspect of the Macedonian phalanx was its ability to penetrate or paralyze hoplite infantry in ways that made it vulnerable to cavalry attack. 
Philip's revolution in infantry combat made possible the transformation of Macedonian cavalry into the combat arm of decision, unquote. This is a noticeable change over previous iterations of Greek warfare, because largely due to the terrain and just like historical precedents, cavalry forces were largely relegated to minor roles in Greek warfare to this point. The rocky mountainous nature of Greece made it difficult to raise great horse stock, and the lessons of previous battles made it appear not worth the effort to do so. Now, I'm not a horse expert by any stretch of the imagination, but one thing I do know about horses is that they're not big fans of charging headlong into walls. And I'd like to go so far as to speculate and say they also aren't big fans of charging into walls of shields with pointy spears sticking over the top. And so it is thought by some that early on the Greeks learned that even the best trained horses tend to buck when forced to charge into hoplite shield walls, which would send their riders tumbling down. And after seeing this, they decided, you know what? Who even needs cavalry? We got these cool hoplites. Like, we're good. We're good on the cavalry front, my guy. Another reason for the lack of cavalry was possibly political slash economical. Only those with enough money to care for a horse could be in the cavalry, obviously. You gotta care for the horse, you gotta equip yourself to fight on horse, all that good stuff. Which meant, in turn, that only the rich, and therefore, in the Greek mind, those prone to tyranny could do so. Which in turn meant that those freedom-loving Greeks did not rot with the cavalry all too much. Now, the Macedonians, for their part, were excellent riders, and it is believed that their horses were far superior to their Greek counterparts because of the pasture land available to them. They also had a stronger class of nobles than in Greece, where, at this point, democracies were more or less of reigning supreme. Also, I just want to remark on the excellent riders thing. At this point, the saddle had not been invented, so they're riding bareback, which is kind of wild. Now, Philip reorganizes his noble cavalry into the companion cavalry, which he arranges in divisions of about 200 men, organized by region, and then a special unit of 300, which were a royal squadron. He also reorganized their tactics, basically by giving them tactics, um, because before they would try to outdo one another and fight sort of individual battles, which is why, despite their skill, they weren't necessarily winning a ton of battles with these guys. And so now the glory is to fight for your unit and your king, stuff like that. And so these units were trained to attack in a wedge formation, which was designed to open up gaps in the enemy lines, often wheeling behind the enemy and opening up gaps, which they would charge through. The infantry would charge in after them. He would also, as his empire kingdom expanded, incorporate, you know, the elite, the, the salient cavalry into his army, and they would prove incredibly important to proceedings as we go on. Another key component of Philip's reorganization of the army was his creation of a unit of engineers. Their job seems to have been just to create a bunch of weird or cool shit that would be used for sieges. So this included, you know, the torsion catapult, which was more akin to a large crossbow, and, you know, some towers, some battering rams, stuff like that. And they, too, would prove very helpful to Alexander on his campaign. Anyway, that's sort of the basics of how Philip restructured the Macedonian military. Again, please keep in mind that a lot of these reforms happened over time and were continually evolving, and that this wasn't some magical transformation overnight. Um, it's just easier to discuss the reforms this way instead of being like tracking them sequentially as we go. But there will be a few times that happens as well. So now we're back to it. 23-year-old Philip is on the throne. Illyrians led by Bardilis running rampant in Upper Macedonia. 
and the rest of their enemies are salivating of the possibility of making Macedonia cease to exist. The straits are dire. However, the sudden passing of Philip's predecessor in battle also granted him a bit of a reprieve as well. No one was expecting this sudden, drastic instability, and this meant his enemies would also need time to enact their dastardly plans against him. So he comes in, fires off the sick pump-up speech we already talked about, gets his army some new fits, some new weapons, some new tactics, and the first thing he does is set about dealing with the Athenian batch pretender to the throne, Argeus. Now at the center of all this drama was a city called Amphipolis. And originally Amphipolis had been a colony of the Athenians, and it was situated near Thrace, but was also in Macedonia. This colony would prove a vital trade hub to the Athenians. How Amphipolis was able to gain their independence with Spartan aid during the Peloponnesian War. Because hey, you know, there's a reason I did these earlier episodes. It had been roughly independent since then. And having an Athenian influence so close to Macedonia wasn't, you know, necessarily ideal for the Macedonians. So Perdiccas III, Philip's predecessor and brother, had garrisoned the city which was in theory designed to maintain their interest and keep out any Athenians. Now, Philip sensed that the Athenians were only supporting Ardeus as part of a strategy to regain Amphipolis. Presumably, the terms of getting him on the throne would include him turning the city over once he became king. So Philip decided to remove the Macedonian garrison from the city, which meant that even if Athens successfully got Ardeus the throne, he'd have been unable to give them the city, which essentially made it pointless for them to support him anymore. So our dude barely came and he's out here playing 4D chess, which hadn't even been invented yet. Philip takes care of the other pretender, Pausanias, by bribing the Paeonians and Thracians to withdraw their support and possibly murder him because he disappears from our sources after that. And here's another bit of good luck for old, well, I guess young Philip at this point, was that the Thracian king died shortly after their dealings which would sow disunity in Thrace and minimize the danger it would pose. So that's a, th a few threats dealt with. Now, following Philip's removal of the Macedonian garrison, the Athenians sent forces into the region anyway. Meanwhile, the pretender Argeus marched into Macedonia with a mercenary army and attempted to declare himself king, but none of the locals really rallied to him. And so Philip marches out with his army and defeats Argeus and presumably kills him. Now, Argeus did have some Athenians with his forces, but the bulk of them had stayed behind at Methone, Methone, Methany? <laughs> at Methine. Yo, this might be Methany, but that's wild. I'm not going to say Methany, I'm going to say Methone. And so the Athenians are trying to take Amphipolis, but ultimately they had to return back to Athens in defeat. Philip did treat those Athenians captured after the battle with Argeus very well, and he allowed them to return to their forces without paying ransom. And then, bam, another stroke of luck as the king of Paeonia dies, and then a fight ensues for that throne. So Philip takes a beat. He thinks to himself, I better capitalize on this. And with his newly invaded, successfully blooded army, launches a decisive and successful campaign against the Paeonians. Little is known about the campaign itself. It evidently ends with a winner-go-home style showdown with the fate of Paeonia in the balance. The Macedonians win, and Paeonia was incorporated into the Macedonian kingdom. Now all of this, Philip taking the shattered throne of Macedonia, outsmarting the Athenians, reorganizing his army, and countering Paeonia, all of this happens in 359 BCE. 
and now we're into 358 BCE. The young king has some victories under his belt. He's demonstrated his abilities and the viability of his new tactics and innovations, and he's proven that his speeches that restored the Macedonian confidence weren't just talk, but that he has the skills to back everything up. And so he sets his eyes on reclaiming Upper Macedonia. He musters an army, probably 10,000 strong, with around 600 cavalry, and he prepares to march. But the Illyrian king Bardilus sends along some envoys, hoping to strike a deal and prevent the war. His terms are that both Philip and Bardilus keep the lands that they currently hold and not go to war with one another. Obviously, Philip rejects this. He demands that the Illyrians withdraw completely from Upper Macedonia. And it's likely that Bardilus knew that this would be the outcome, and so he gathers his army to him. The Illyrian forces were probably similar to those of the Macedonians, with around 10,000 of their own infantry and 500 cavalry. And the Illyrians were no doubt confident in their abilities to beat their foes, remembering that they had shattered the Macedonian army and killed the previous king just a few short years before. They were considered to be formidable raiders and had indeed <laughs> raided the Macedonians consistently throughout the years. And it's also likely that the Illyrians were not necessarily a group of people with any ethnic or national identity, but really a scattering of loose tribes that the Greeks just referred to as Illyrians, and that Bardilus had united a number of them under his leadership some years past, and that is when they started to form like this true threat to Macedon, and not just like raiders. In the 5th century, a Spartan general named Brasidas was dismissive of their prowess in battle, claiming they fought as a loose mob and were not as formidable as they seemed. However, it is thought that by 358 BCE, many among them had adopted more organized formations, with the wealthiest among them even adopting that hoplite-style armor. So Philip and his revamped Macedonian army meet the Illyrians on what was supposed to be a pretty open field, with the two sides situated opposite one another. Now they scream at each other for a little bit, because that's just what we did back in the day. Nice little shouting match, trying to intimidate the other side, maybe even break their spirits a little bit, make them run before the battle begins. If that's not out of line, would be ideal. This was not to be in this instance, and what exactly was to be is actually unclear, as both of our surviving sources are incomplete. For example, the Illyrian cavalry is unmentioned, really, in the battle, which could mean that the sources just left it out, or that part's missing, or it could mean that they dismounted and joined the infantry after riding to battle, or it could mean they were driven off the field early in the engagement, or, you know, any number of other things. What we do know about the battle is this. The armies start off opposite one another. Philip orders his cavalry to sweep around the Illyrian flanks, at which point the Illyrians responded by forming a large hollow square with four fronts to stave off encirclement. So the Illyrians form bots basically with four rows facing each direction so they could be surrounded, but each side had the other's back. As the cavalry advances and the Illyrians are deploying in this new formation, the Macedonian infantry advances with Philip and the royal bodyguard apparently advancing faster than the rest of the infantry. Perhaps this was by design, and perhaps it was just because they were better trained, unclear, but regardless, they're able to catch the Illyrians in a vulnerable corner of their formation. This is something we'll see fairly often, the Macedonians forcing their enemies to reposition themselves and opening a gap in the formation which they then exploit. The battle rages on for quite some time, but eventually the Macedonians prevail with some of the cavalry breaking through the Illyrian line. 
Eventually, the Illyrian forces begin to withdraw, and in a disorganized retreat, even more are killed, with Diodorus telling us that of their force of around 10,000, 7,000 fall in the battle. Once again, though this time in defeat, Vardilus sends envoys to Philip, and at this point, Philip likely marries for the first time. There's some dispute over this, with some claiming an earlier wife for Ardai, or the same wife but married at an earlier time. I'm placing it here and rocking with my main man, Adrian Doldsworthy. And so anyway, Philip marries Audita, an Illyrian princess, following his defeat of the Illyrians in battle. She may have been a granddaughter of Bardilis, but was definitely a high-ranking Illyrian woman, and this marriage likely solidified the peace agreement. And that was basically, you know, Philip now in control of Upper Macedonia, and he has more control over it than any art he had gained since at least Alexander I nearly 100 years before. Philip reorganizes the region, marrying a member of the Alemian royal house, which was one of the petty royals or nobles from Upper Macedonia that we talked about last episode, because the Ardeads were kings, but they were really considered first amongst equals, which is why they could only get away with what they did away with, and they didn't really have like well-defined powers. Basically, however successful and powerful the king was, determined what he'd be able to get away with. Because Philip was so successful and so charming, he was able to get these upper Macedonian nobles to join his court because it had become clear that this young king and his patronage would bring more prestige and power than any ancient title. He also firmly established the royal capital at Pella and likely created the institution of the royal pages where leading families would send their children to court to be raised and fostered and serve as cupbearers to the king. This also would help ensure loyalty by bringing a future generation of nobles and tying them to the leading family, and also, you know, they'd obviously serve as hostages to the current generation of nobles. Philip also invited poets, artists, singers, philosophers to his court, further demonstrating his innovative nature and desires to reform not just the Macedonian army, but all of Macedon. He wanted a sophisticated nation, or at the very least, a sophisticated ruling class. And so another example of this is when he resettles his people, which is designed to further unite them and moves some of the pastoralists of Upper Macedonia into cities and walled towns to cultivate farmland. His new conquest and incorporations of Upper Macedonia and Paeonia into his kingdom also give him a vast infusion of manpower, which allow him to draw ever more forces into his army, and then his successes would continue to bind his peoples to him as well. And this is something we see as he conquers new regions, he incorporates them into the army, into the society, resettles the population, moves them all over, and then just keeps grinding out W's. And then because of that, they're like, this guy, Phil, we love him. And he's like, getting us all this good stuff. It is important to point out that like with the military reforms, a lot of these societal reforms are ongoing processes. But in 358 BCE, Philip begins to intervene in the salient affairs. Now, Thessaly had served as a buffer between Greece and Macedon. In a lot of ways, it was very similar to Macedon. It was a land rich in resources and people waiting to be unleashed. In 358, 358, Thessaly was divided into two camps after the death of their great leader, their version of Philip, kind of, Jason of Pharae, who had managed to briefly unite much of Thessaly under one control, under his control, but was killed about 10 years before Philip took the throne. His murder sparked a series of dynastic struggles that were still playing out 
and divided Thessaly between the coastal city of Pherae and their allies, and they were pitted against the Thessalian lead, which was along the Macedonian border, led by Larissa. Now, details aren't the best for this, but Philip was definitely messing around in Thessaly, trying to manipulate things to his advantage, and most notable of this is that he took two wives, Marian Nisipolis of Pherae as his third wife, and then Felina of Pherae as his fourth. These moves allowed him to get in nice with the Thessalian aristocracy, and likely prevented any immediate actions against him coming in from Thessaly. Felina would bear Philip his first son in 357, and this is our guy, Herodias, but we'll talk more about him later. These two new wives meant that Philip had married four times in his short time on the throne, all of which had been for political advantage, and in 357 BCE, he would again marry, this time, if the ancient sources are to be believed, and they probably shouldn't be, for love. This, of course, is none other than Olympias of Epirus, future mother of Alexander the Great, and I think it's important to note that she was much more than just Alexander the Great's mother, and we'll definitely touch more on her in the Alexander the Heir episode, because I definitely want to talk about her because women are so neglected in the ancient sources, but with Philip away on campaign so much, Olympias surely had much more to say in the way young Alexander was molded. In Macedonia, there was no formal hierarchy of wives or queens, and it is unclear how public a role the queen served in court. We do know that they spun their own clothes from a rather dramatic incident later on, and we also know that women besides entertainers were forbidden from the infamous drinking symposiums the Macedonian men held with great aplomb. Anyway, Philip had spent the first years of his reign marrying and warring, and in addition to marrying Olympias, he keeps the tradition of waging wars alive in 357 BCE, this time against Amphipolis. Philip explained his war against Amphipolis by claiming that they were ill-disposed towards him and gave him many pretexts for war. Amphipolis didn't have a super large population, nor was their army particularly strong, but it did have a lot of natural defenses and strong walls which made them difficult to besiege for any super long amount of time. The Athenians had been attempting to reconquer the city for decades, but had proven unsuccessful in each attempt. Now, Athenians weren't some inept fools for being unable to pull this off. Sieges were very difficult to prosecute in the ancient world, and this is partially why we see so many atrocities associated with the fall of cities. It was often difficult for a besieging army to maintain their supply lines, and it was nearly impossible to break ancient walls with the siege engines of the time. Given all that, treachery by some parties being besieged or bribery by the besiegers were often crucial in the success, in the success of any siege. Philip was very well aware of this, and would boast later in his life that he could defeat any city with walls which an ass laden with gold could climb. There were also a fair amount of incentive to betray a city being besieged if things were light looking dicey, because the end of sieges were not great. The citizens of a fallen city were often butchered, with the women being victims of horrible assault, and the citizens who did survive were often sold into slavery. Just awful, brutal affairs, and largely just accepted as part of life in the ancient world, unfortunately. And we're not here to moralize or anything or like look back with our modern values, but tough look for ancient friends, I would say. Also, there were the uh, general standard issues of fighting street by street and the brutality associated with all that as well. The fight to the death adds levels of brutality when a city knows that they're like, if they don't win this fight, they're dead. 
That makes things more brutal. However, Philip is determined to crack Amphipolis and puts his engineering corpse to work, bringing in siege engines like battering rams, towers, and the torsion catapults we'd already talked about against the walls of Amphipolis, gradually chipping away at the defenses and the city walls. Philip also at this point has a pretty large army and is able to rotate his men in and out of the siege, keeping them relatively fresh. You know, some are attacking the wall, some are sleeping. And this also allows him to keep constant pressure on the defenders who don't have that same resource of men to draw on. And so, you know, they're constantly under attack, which means they're not sleeping, they're frustrated, they're exhausted, they're stressed. And so the Amphipolians, Amphipolians were thus faced with the possibility of defeat and all the horrors that that would entail or surrender. However, they decided, third option, we're going to send envoys out to Athens, begging them for help presumably offering to allow them to recolonize the city. Now, Athens had, of course, been monitoring the situation, but they weren't quite sure how to proceed. Sending military aid would be costly and could, like, was no guarantee of victory, and they also had issues of their own to worry about, with some allies seemingly poised for rebellion. And this brings us to Demosthenes, who I think is going to a little bonus episode, about 15 minutes long or so. But we did our first mention of this absolute clown car of a person. So Demosthenes comes down to us as the chief anti-Philip instigator in Athens. And while his ultimate instigation is coming down the line, he uses the circumstances surrounding the siege to his advantage claiming later on that Philip hoodwinked Athens in their dealings surrounding Amphipolis. Amphipolis begs Athens for help. Athens not quite sure what to do, so they send some ambassadors to Philip himself, trying to figure out what's going on here. Like, don't make us involved, stuff like that. According to Demosthenes, who was just not above making shit up, but according to him, he claims Philip told the ambassadors that he was going to conquer Amphipolis and turn it over to them. He's going through all this effort right now. You know, his men are dying, suffering. He's going to conquer this city and then just turn it over to the Athenians. We do know that this was never an official treaty because the way Athens worked, a treaty would have to have been agreed upon in the assembly and could not have been carried out in secret. But apparently whatever rumblings made their way back to the city were enough to mollify any concerns and they decided not to send a force. Later in 357 BCE, in the summer, Philip's forces breached the city walls and conquered the city, and he was lenient in his treatment of the conquered Amphipolis, only putting to death the leaders of those who opposed him and allowing the majority of the people to remain in their own homes with most of their property still intact. However, he incorporates the city into his kingdom, and while the day-to-day largely goes unchanged, he does not turn the city over to Athens. Making matters worse, he follows up this attack by attacking the nearby city of Pydna, which was also very dear to Athens and Athenian interests in the region. One of the reasons that Amphipolis was so important is that it was near a very productive silver mine and allowing the city to remain independent or for Athens or any other city-state to control the city. Not great for Macedonian interests. So at this point, Pydna and Amphipolis are down, conquered by the Macedonians, and Athens is just not happy at all. And they take the pretty drastic step of declaring war on Macedon, but are unable to actually do anything about it because those rebellious allies are up up to it, you know? They're rebelling. Can't really lead to fights going on. Can't really 
be fighting two wars right now. However, Philip's aggression against Amphipolis and Pydnia provoked the Chalcidian League, and thinking that Philip may be overextending himself, the Illyrians and Paeonians are also lifting their chops to the Badger Macedon. And this is the point that Philip definitely becomes king if he wasn't already. So Athens decides to enlist the aid of these potential enemies of Philip in the coming struggle, but Philip is able to thwart them. And this is where some of the alleged weaknesses of democracy Philip may have become acquainted with in Thebes come into play, as he is able to move decisively and quickly while Athens has to waste time arguing in the assembly. So first he strikes a deal with the Chalcidian League and their leading city Olynthus, which closes the door on the Athenians there. So he offers to besiege and then grant Olynthus Podidia, a city that they'd been yearning for for years. After the oracle at Delphi gives the treaty the seal of approval, treaty is confirmed and the Athenians lose that ally. Now Philip actually keeps his word this time and grants Podidia to the Chalcidian lead after a short but bloody siege. However, he is much more harsh in his treatment of the conquered city, selling its inhabitants into slavery. Though again, the Athenian garrison was treated with great leniency and is allowed to return home without paying ransom. During the siege, he also splits off his forces and conquers a few other nearby settlements, further growing his coffers and empire. This included a battle against the Thracians, who were apparently encouraged by the Athenians. While Philip is up to this, his leading general, a very important figure we'll hear more about throughout this series, Parmenio, is leading the campaign to bring the Paeonians and then the Illyrians to heel, apparently winning great victories over both in 356 BCE. And this is where we did a very famous story. Just after the fall of Potidea, Philip receives three messengers. The first steps forward and tells the king that Parmenio has just won a great victory over the Illyrians. The second steps forward and announces that Philip's horse has just won gold in the Olympic Games. And the third messenger, entering just behind the others, tells the king that his wife Olympias had just given birth to a child, his second son, a boy named Alexander. And that is all we have time for today. Philip has transformed Macedonia from a nothing backwater manipulated and abused by its neighbors, its natural resources harvested for others' benefits to a force capable of going toe-to-toe with ancient Athens and influencing events in Greece. He had stared down and outwitted the Athenians on two occasions, leaving it isolated without any allies in the region and dealing with a litany of problems in its own backyard. And one of these problems would allow Philip to intervene decisively in Greek affairs, but that, my friends is a story for next time. So, as always, if you did what you're hearing, be sure to drop those five-star ratings, five-star reviews on the podcast platform of your choice. Help me rise up the charts, get some new listeners, you know the deal. And be sure to follow the podcast on Instagram at Podcast and on Twitter at Podcast for memes, updates, and whatever other random happenings I'm up to. If you want more High Tea Obsessed, be sure to subscribe to the Patreon as well. Next time, we're going to be talking more about Philip's reign from where we're at now, 356 BCE, probably to the end of the Sacred War, but we'll see once the notes get going. So until next time, remember, men lie, women lie, numbers don't.